No one really wants to live a meaningless life, but there are not a lot of people that can actually tell you how to live one with purpose and meaning. Uh, a lot of lack of clarity on what kind of values would you even hold. And you need to understand something that really the relationships that you share and the values that you hold really are going to determine the life that you live. Now, when it comes to your values, initially you actually get them from your parents, okay? Or whoever's raising you, you pick up from what the things they value, you start to value them. But as you grow older, other influences enter your life. If you go to a church, uh, folks in the church start influencing your life. You start going to school, all of a sudden you're introduced to a whole new uh, perspective on life. You may have a whole new set of values that are being presented there from teachers, but probably one of the greatest shapers of values are the friends that you keep. And then, of course, there's influences of society, whether it be from media or movies. You got some folks that you consider a rock star and you'd certainly like to be like them. You figure out what their values are. A lot of folks are influenced by that and start buying into that. You see folks that are athletic and they kind of make a scene and they've got their own type of uh, values and things that are important to them. And there's a lot of folks that are shaped by movie stars and athletic heroes. And, you know, that can be good or that can be bad. It all is determined by the source of these values. If your values that you're living by and are being reinforced are from under the sun, they're the values of the world, they're from fallen humanity, they're, they're fleshly, they're sourced in human interest and human ideals, you're in trouble On the other hand, if the values in your life are divine in origin, they come from God, they are spoken of in his word, and they are reinforced by other believers, you're on a whole new trajectory in life. Now, you might be here and going, you know, I agree with the statements that I find in the book of Ecclesiastes, that life is vanity of vanities, it seems emptiness, and like chasing after the wind. And if you are sick of living like that, you're perhaps even kind of on fumes right now. I am so glad that you're here and that you've got your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Because in this section that we're going to look at, beginning in verse 4, you're going to find the values that lead to a meaningful life. What are the values that you and I need to hold to keep us from the vanity of life? Well, we're going to take a look at them this morning. And beginning... First of all, in chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, let me give you the first God-centered value that will keep you having meaning in life. And that is the value of contentment. What you're going to find here in verses 4, 4 through 8, is that Paul is, excuse me, Solomon is using two contrasting proverbs. He's going to show you a person that is driven, a workaholic, and then he's going to contrast it to someone who's a lazy and a sluggard. And then he's going to give you the biblical balance where you're going to find health and life. And so he begins by saying, verse 4, I have seen in all my observations and all my people watching that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. And this too is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, he's talking about every type of labor and every achievement, not every instance, but he's saying in every type of labor and every every achievement, I see that rivalry, jealousy, envy drives so much of human behavior. He says, 
that kind of rivalry, it's vanity and striving after the wind. This, this whole idea of just constant state of competition, you are just living not content, never satisfied, just driven like a maniac. And if you think like, well, that's not really our culture, you are mistaken. Um, personnel today has done some research and an article entitled Jealousy Grips the Nation. They found this from their research that nine out of 10 office workers suffer from professional envy of colleagues they perceive to have more glamorous or better paid jobs. What really drives a lot of people is climbing another step on the ladder, doing better than others, wanting more, and and it's just an all-consuming drive. And I'll tell you that envy and jealousy can bring out the worst in you. There's an ancient story of a king, and he was familiar with this, of these two guys, and they had a rivalry. And this one guy was just always so jealous and so envious of this, this other guy. And so what the king did, he said, listen, to the guy who was super envious, I'll tell you what, I am going to allow you to have whatever you want. You ask of me, and I'm going to provide it, but I need you to understand. You know the guy that you are always despising and so envious of? I'm going to give him twice as much. So you go think about it, and you tell me what you like. Oh, you know, the guy's like, oh, man, because if I ask for this, then this guy that I hate so much, he's going to get twice as much. Oh, I can't. Well, after lots of pondering and consideration, he finally had an answer for the king. He said, listen, I know what I want you to give. I know that if you will give twice as much to this guy, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to take out one of my eyes. I want you to pluck it out. Because I know that if you take one of my out, you're going to take both of those out on this guy that I hate and despise. And I, and I tell you this because, really, when you're driven by envy and jealousy, it can bring out the worst in you. And uh, now, I want you to understand that achievement under the sun, if, it, if you do not have a God-centered perspective on life, envy and jealousy are going to drive, and they are never satisfied. Now, do not get me wrong. The Scripture isn't down on hard work. In fact, God created work. So you look at the book of Genesis, you find very early on in the garden, in perfection, that God introduces work. You and I are actually created and made for work. And work can be worship when there's a God-centered perspective. We would do things from his, for his honor. We're living for his glory. We're asking for strength, for wisdom. Anytime you go about whatever you're doing throughout the week, your work becomes worship. And, I mean, you see that. They are given work. Jesus... For the first, like, 30 years of his life, do you happen to know what he did? That's, man, that is so good. You guys are so sharp in second service. I had to wait, like, 20 seconds to get that one first service. He was a carpenter. He was working. He wasn't just sitting around waiting for handouts and someone to take care of him. He was a worker. He was the oldest. He probably had the, the family business, and he's training his brothers on how to work. There's nothing wrong with work. In fact, the scriptures extol the value of hard work. This, he's not down on on healthy competition that you find between companies, uh, between corporations, or even in nations. He's not down on free enterprise that where businesses are made strong through healthy competition. What he's after when he talks about this rivalry you find in verse 4 is that fighting, devouring, clawing, pushing, carnal, savage, selfishness, that drives so many individuals. And Solomon says, you know, I've observed that. This rivalry, and it is vanity, and it is striving after the wind. Has anybody ever heard of the word 
Karashi. Anybody heard of that? It was in the news last month. Interesting. No one? Okay. If you're from Japan or you've watched the news, you're familiar with Karashi. It is the Japanese word which means death from overwork. They actually introduced it in their society in 1970. Karashi describes what is now being titled as an epidemic in Japan. Research from last year, government research into Japan, found that 20% of the people in their workforce seem to be suffering from Karashi, death from overwork. And uh, that means they're on track to die. Hundreds of people in Japan die from overwork. They either uh, have a stroke, heart attack, or they commit suicide. And the reason that it was in the news is in the last month is that they had this other, this individual, 31-year-old journalist, chronic overworker, Miwa Sadu. She, she died the month that she uh, logged 159 hours of overtime in that month. And she died. And they did this assessment and they said she died from Karashi. Death from overwork. Hundreds of people every year die from death for overwork. I did some research on this. They take pictures of these people literally passed out in in their workplace or on a bus or on the street. Death from overwork. Now, some of you, if you're a student, you might want to check with your teacher or your professor. And if they know the word Karashi and I'm like, no, never heard of it. You're like, oh, man, my worst fears have come true. And you introduce him to it because this is a real problem. Now, as Americans, we go, man, those Japanese, you know, they, they've actually, sociologists think that this actually has its origins from about 1945 when they tried to rebuild their country. And they literally put this value into their culture. You're just driven. And it's led to Karashi, death from overwork. And as Americans, we go, oh, that's foolish, man. What are those Japanese people thinking? Working themselves to death, whether literally or figuratively. But I'd like to ask you, how are you doing in that category? Now, we might say, well, you know, I'm working for the glory of God. And if you're a Christian, you may be. But honestly, how much of that is for the glory of God? Or if you're working like a maniac, you're overworking, you have no margins in your life. Is that for just you to climb the next step on the ladder? Make some more money? Live in a different neighborhood? To meet, perhaps, your boss's expectations? Or probably, more likely your expectations that you've imposed upon yourself. Whether you're trying to impress people or just to climb or to make your money, I want you to understand something. You can kill yourself through overwork. And if you're like, come on, really? Well, why don't you just go ask our Japanese friends? It's so prevalent. They got a word for it. Karashi. And Solomon is observing this. He says this kind of just vicious rivalry. It's vanity and striving after the wind. Well, then he says, you know, verse five, he's going to contrast that to a person that's a fool and a sluggard. Look at verse five. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. The fool is someone who lacks good judgment. And this idea of folding your hands, it was a gesture that was practiced by the lazy. So like if you read the book of Proverbs, you know that this is how they refer to the foolish, lazy person. Like to give me, I'll give you an example. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will, will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep? A little slumber? 
a little folding of the hands to rest and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. All you have to do is read the book of Proverbs once to find that Solomon was no fan of laziness. And this idea of like consuming your own flesh, he's obviously using hyperbole there. But the idea that you're a lazy individual and you just will not work, you're never satisfied. You're always tormented. Now, if you think that uh, the Old Testament and the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes is hard on sloth and the refusal to work, try the New Testament. Like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes this, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. You see, your drive to eat is going to be a real good impetus to work. So if you're a typical male and you need to eat about four to five times a day, right? You got to somehow put food on the table and have it in the pantry and work will drive you to do that. Now, what he's doing is he's condemning laziness. He says it's absolutely futile. Interesting, in our own country, in the 1950s, where there's all this industrious work and lots of prosperity, in the 1960s, there were some folks that said, you know what, we are going to completely bail on this value of ambition and, and working hard and all that. No, no, no. We're going to take the title of flower children. We're going to just completely try to step out of mainstream society. We're going to drive around in VW buses. We're going to refuse to shower. We're going to sit in the grass and we're going to hum. And, and they did. They walked away. They let their hair grow long, and they just tried to move out of mainstream. What Solomon is saying, you know what, the fool that just refuses to work, they're just kind of folding their hands, you know what they're doing. They're consuming their own flesh. So then, between these two contrasts is the biblical balance. And you find it in verse 6. Look it. He says, one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after Wind. What he's saying there is you want to be an individual that not only can work hard, but you know how to rest and actually experience refreshment. That you've got some margins in your life. And this is, this is hard to learn, but you can do it. But friends, if you come to a place where you're sick of being in the rat race, where the rats seem to get bigger and faster, and you're done with it, the Bible says what you want to do, verse 6, is you want to be like that. You have a handful of rest. You know the value of working hard. You have what is called contentment. Let me give you a, a verse that you might want to mark down. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. It says this, But godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. That you are able to enjoy God. You're at peace with yourself. You can work hard and you can rest. You've got margins. You have what is called satisfaction. You can appreciate what God has given you versus resenting or like, I just got to work more to get more of this, that there is a sense of peace in your life. And friends, if you can't learn to find this biblical balance, there's some harsh realities either side of the equation, laziness or just being a maniac that's overworking. Frank Sinatra's daughter, Tina Sinatra, in her book, My Father's Daughter, uh, writes of her dad's just unceasing drive to succeed and make more money. Even when his health was at risk and he was completely failing, 
He wouldn't stop working. And so let me just read you a brief excerpt from her book. She writes of her dad, Frank Sinatra, his health was in tatters and his life was mired in financial wrangles. But my father refused to stop giving concerts. I've just got to earn more money, he said. His performances, sad to say, were becoming more and more uneven. Uncertain of his memory, he became dependent on teleprompters. When I saw him at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, he struggled through the show and felt so sick at the end that he needed oxygen from a tank that he kept on hand. At another show, he forgot the lyrics to Second Time Around, a ballad that he had sung a thousand times. His adoring audience finished it for him. And I couldn't bear to see Dad struggle. I remembered all the times he repeated that old boxing maxim, you got to get out before you hit the mat. He wanted to retire at the top of his game, and I always thought that he would know when his time came. But pushing 80, he lost track of when to quit. After seeing one too many of these fiascos, I told him, Pop, you can stop now. You don't have to stay on the road. And with a stricken expression, he said, no, I've got to earn more money. I've got to make sure everyone's taken care of. And since his death, it's been one family fight after another over his fortune. So Solomon lays out these two extremes in this proverb. He gives you the biblical balance, work hard, rest. And then he gives you an example. Look at verses 7 and 8 of someone who just didn't listen. A negative example of a miserly miser. Look at this lonely guy, verse 7. Then I looked again. At vanity under the sun. You want to see what vanity under the sun looks like? Verse 8. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. He is just working like crazy. He has no relationships, no family, no friends. He's on his own. Does this sound familiar? Should. Ever read the Christmas Carol? There's a guy by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge. That's him. Works like crazy, pushes people to the brink, could care less, has no relationships with anybody. You find him one night and he's sitting by this meager little fire. He's just surrounded by wealth and he's just like eating his soup. The windows are all clouded over, but it doesn't really matter. No one looks in, and he never looks out. He has no relationships, and he is about to die a miserly, lonely individual. Friends, if you do not have the value of contentment, this likely will be your outcome. Does that sound appealing to you? It shouldn't. You need to understand that if God is not at the center of your work, if your work is not worship, if you're not working in a balanced way, it's just you give yourself fully. And at times you're going to have to really apply yourself. Don't get me wrong. But you have to learn how to have some rest and refreshment in the Lord. Otherwise, envy and pride will take over and it leaves you some pretty ugly results. You see, the relationships that you have and the values that you hold will really determine the life that you live. So value contentment. Let me show you another value that he highlights here. In contrast to the vanity of the world, he highlights the value of community in verses 9 through 12. 
where you see the importance of companionship, of friendship. And when he talks about the miserly guy, Ebenezer Scrooge, it brings to mind another key value to keep life from being so very meaningless. And that's the value of community. Now, it's really interesting. When you begin reading the Bible at the very beginning in Genesis, everything is good. God says, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good. And there's until all of a sudden he makes a statement of something that is not good. Anybody remember what God first said was not good? It's, it's loneliness. Everything's been really good, but God sees Adam and he's lonely. It's not that he doesn't have a bunch of pets running around. I mean, the guy lives in a zoo. There's animals everywhere, right? It's great, but he's lonely. No one for him like him, okay? And so God says, this is not good. I created people for relationship. Relationship with me, and I want them to have a relationship with one another. So he brings Adam to a place where he sees Loneliness is not it. God even makes a divine pronouncement. It is not good. And then he brings Eve and he brings community and relationship because you and I are to value relationship because that'll keep you from having a meaningless life. And so let's just kind of take a look at verses 9 through 12. When you look at the value of community, Warren Wiersbe did a real good job of outlining these verses, so I just kind of borrowed from him. I, I modified the final point. But he highlights just how important it is to have friendships and true community in life. Look at verse 9. He says, two are better than one for working. You see that? Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. You see, when you combine individuals... You find that you've got strength and creativity and talent. You can work together. There's ambition. There's a synergism. There's a chemistry that takes place where one plus one equals three. When you've got relationship, he says it is far better to have a companion or people you're working with and people you're in community with than to be the lone ranger. I've got this all figured out and I'll do it on my own. You know, the sum is is greater than its parts when you've got one Plus one. You've got community. And I'll tell you that, yeah, you're going to share the profits, but you're going to probably have more profits when you can learn to work together in a team. Look what else he says about the value of community. Look at verse 10. Two are better than one for walking. He says, For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. You went on your own. You thought, well, I'll just do better on myself. By the way, I like things better because I do it right and everybody else can't get it figured out. He says, you know what? Two are better for one than when you're walking. Now, what he's talking about here is when you travel, right now, we're, we're kind of pretty familiar with sidewalks and roads. In Solomon's time, those things didn't really exist like that. There's no asphalt. There's no concrete. And so the tra trails that they traveled on had rocks. Sometimes there were pits nearby. It was not uncommon for a traveler, no matter how skilled they were, to fall at different times. It's just kind of how you, you're walking someplace. You're going to plan at some different times. You're going to fall. Well, that's fine if you can pick yourself up. But what if you broke your leg? 
Or what if you fell in a pit? If you do not have anyone with you, you die. And so what Solomon is saying, listen, two are better for one for walking. Because you know what? You're going to stumble at some point. You are going to fall. And that's true physically. But it's especially true spiritually. You think I'm going to live in isolation. Well, I don't really need anybody. It's just me and God. True, it's you and God. But what happens when you make some bad decisions? What happens when you go through a trial and you have no one to help you process and keep pointing you to Christ and pointing out the goodness of Jesus? What happens when you face temptation and you bite in and you got a hook and it's dragging you all through all sorts of misery? If you don't have a companion, you're in trouble. And that's why Solomon says two are better than one for walking. We need others in our life for the encouragement, for the help. That's found in relationship. That's why you value community. Look at another. Look at verse 11. He says, two are better than one for warmth. Look at this. Verse 11. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Now, he's not talking about sexual meaning here. What he's talking about is the fact that when you've got another individual by you, you've got the potential for warmth. He's talking about traveling. So like if you were out in the desert and it gets bitterly cold, what they would do is they would, when they were going to get some sleep, they would lie down next to each other. You find this, this has been the practice in the world for, for ages, where if you want warmth, you lie down to one another. Even when they were traveling in groups and they put up a tent, they'd all huddle in next to each other because when it got super cold in the desert, you know what you at least had? You had warmth and then the ability for sleep. Now, you ever heard of that uh, Australian Aboriginal phrase, a three-dog night? You guys ever heard of that? You guys know what it comes from, what it means? See, uh, when it got really cold in Australia, in the outback, what you'd need in order to stay warm and survive is you needed, on those really cold nights, three dogs sleeping around you so you would stay warm. Because the warmth of those dogs keep you alive and keep you warm so you could sleep. And that's what this text is telling us. There is warmth that comes from a relationship. Certainly physical warmth, but more importantly, emotional care, relationship, spiritual well-being, vitality. This week, Wednesday night, uh, it would just so work out. It was super cold and rainy, and Cameron, my, my youngest son, had a football game. And so there they're out there, out there on the field, and it was really interesting to watch these boys. They were, first of all, they were underdressed, okay? And, and when they were on the sideline, they were all like just huddled together like penguins, you know? And there's all sorts of things. But then Cameron, uh, when I picked him up after the game, he was telling me, I was the coldest I've ever been playing football. He said, it was okay when I was around the other guys because you stay warm. But man, out on the field, he plays linebacker. I felt like I was all by myself. And it was so cold out there. I've never been so cold playing football. Well, friends, I tell you that because when you're out there alone and you're not with others it is cold and it is lonely it's kind of like coals you keep the coals together guess what they keep warm keep bright fire keeps going you isolate one of those coals that coal goes out you isolate yourself from other believers for whatever justification whatever reason you got going you won't try relationships or no one likes me or whatever Friends, you're setting yourself up in a dangerous situation. And then, speaking of danger, look what he says in verse 12. 
Two are better than one for watching out for danger. And he says, and if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. What he's talking about here is that when you've got two of you, you can protect yourself. You ever notice that police officers travel in two? Why? Because that is a force to be reckoned with. They can protect each other. You get in trouble when you do the Lone Ranger thing. You ever watch that movie Gladiator? Remember Maximus? He's the general that's been stripped of his position. He's turned into a slave. They turn him into a gladiator. In this one scene, they're thrown into the Colosseum, and he's with these other gladiators. You know, all of them are prepared to die. And Maximus says this, whatever comes out these gates, and he's pointing to these gates at that Colosseum. They don't know what's coming after him. He says, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. Do you understand? If we stay together, we survive. And then all of a sudden those gates go up and here come all these chariots out there. And sure enough, one guy runs out and just he separates himself from the group and he's mowed over. They start huddling in and pulling together. And I tell you, they actually survived. And you need to understand something. You want protection? There is strength in numbers. You see that what he said there? It's kind of a famous verse. If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. And a cord of three strands is not, le- not quickly torn apart. There is strength in numbers. Uh, it is said that when you weave three cords together, it's more than three times as strong than if they were alone. Friends, you and I need relationship. You and I need to value community. And I'd like to speak to what's going on right now in our world. Don't settle for pseudo-community. Stephen Marsh, in his article, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely, said this, The web of connections had grown broader but shallower, as has happened for many of us. We are living in an isolation that would have been unimaginable to our ancestors, and yet we have never been more accessible. Listen to this. We live in an accelerating contradiction. The more connected we become, the lonelier we are. We are living in the age of faux friendships. You've got hundreds of friends, right? But you don't have anyone or very few people that really actually care about you or really know you. And so you need to understand something. Isolation leads to desolation. So you want to build community. You want to value it. That's what this text is highlighting. And so if you're like, well, how do you actually build community? How do you actually have a friend? I want to give you some ideas because I do not want you to be lonely and I want you to have this value. Try this. Love and respect. You show love to people and respect people. Try it for a month. You go love people and you show people respect. I bet you get friends. If it's not working, come back to me. I got some other ideas. In fact, I'll give you some. You, you, uh, you treat people with appreciation. You appreciate them. You put their interests before your own. Be kind and caring. Try this one on. Just smile. I mean, I tell you, just smiling, all of a sudden, uh, people, like, people like to be around people that smile. You will look 10 times better if you smile. Really, it just will change. I know you can sink hundreds of dollars in wardrobe and makeup and all that, but just try smiling. It's, it's really God's way of making you beautiful. And you will actually have some friends. You will develop community. You can also do this. You can make some memories with people. You can share life experiences. You can serve together. When you do these things, when you value community, friends, life takes on a whole new sense of meaning. And, and stop doing this. Stop trying to get people interested in you, like how great you are. And you know how these people, like, they're always talking about themselves. And you do something like, well, I did something even better than that, you know. 
Stop. That is, that is a great way to have no friends because they'll endure you and they will never come back. What you want to do is have the value that's expressed here. True community. You see, after all, the relationships that you have and the values that you hold determine the life that you live. And finally, look at verses 13 through the end here in verse 16. The third value he highlights. You really want meaning in life? Value the continual growth in wisdom. So he says, there is a poor yet wise lad. A poor yet wise lad is better. You might want to underline that than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. For he has come out of prison, speaking of this poor lad, to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. And I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people who, will, uh, who were there before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, this too is vanity and striving after wind. So he talks about two guys. So you've got this king. At one time in his life, he listened to wisdom. But you know what? Been there, done that. I'm, I've been around the block, and I don't, I don't listen to wisdom anymore. I'll surround myself with people that will just basically tell me what I want to hear. But I'm, I'm not after wisdom anymore. And he says that king, he comes to his end. On the other hand, there is a poor, okay, speaking of the fact that he just doesn't he comes from humble origins and he also went into prison we don't know why he's in prison but he gets out of prison and he becomes king sound familiar sounds like joseph doesn't he he was poor right his brothers turned him into slave then he goes into prison but he gets out of prison and he becomes the number two guy in the egyptian empire and he's what he's stressing here though is it is better to have wisdom you want to value growing in wisdom this old king, he's imprisoned in his stupidity. Usually when you have old people, you want old people to have wisdom, right? And you want to have the wisdom of God. If you stop learning, you stop growing. And if you stop growing, you start dying. And that's what happened with this king. You know, I want you to know that prison, being poor, that's no obstacle to God. He can bring you out of those things. In fact, he can use those things. But you're going to need godly wisdom you want to value a growth mindset and i'll tell, i just want to tell you some things you can know a lot of bible you can be really smart you could have made a lot of wise decisions in the past if you grow old and you stop growing in wisdom you're in for a tragic end to your life that it is so dangerous and it is self-destructive when you've got an old person who no longer listens to wisdom and i've seen it and it'll break your heart. They should know better. They do know better. But they have silenced the people that could have helped them. Or furthermore, they're not even asking. They're just plowing ahead. You find people that what happens is, you want to make bad decisions? Do this. Don't listen to wisdom and godly advice. Don't have any mentors. And make feeling-based decisions. You're going to end up like this king. What Solomon is saying, though, you know, it is always better to have wisdom and yet did you notice how it ends even the the poor lad who becomes king he's got wisdom eventually folks are done with him and he's basically showing that you know it's it's vanity when popularity becomes your identity i want you to know something if you base your worth and your value and your identity on what people are thinking of you 
you're setting yourself up for the vanity of life. What you want to do is grow in wisdom. Oliver Cromwell, he took the British throne away from Charles I and he established the Commonwealth. He was talking with a friend one day and he said this, Do not trust to the cheering, for those persons would shout as much if you and I were going to be hanged. You just want to be careful about the fickleness of people. I mean, popularity, achievement, riches, man, they have an expiration date like cottage cheese. I hope you're not eating that stuff. That's so gross. But anyway, but I, I, I want you to know that stuff is fleeting and it's, it's going to expire. It's going to get green and nasty and it just gets thrown away. Don Meredith, I think some of you are familiar with him, Pro Bowl NFL quarterback for the 60s, played for the Dallas Cowboys. He had this statement he'd say from time to time, talking about quarterbacks. Today, you're in the penthouse. Tomorrow, you're in the outhouse. That's just how it works. One day, man, everybody loves you. You have a bad game. You're done. You're out of here. You're refuse. We don't really want you anymore. And I mean, some of you have experienced this firsthand. You've tried to do the noble thing and become the president of your homeowners association or, or run the Rotary Club. When you're done with that, you're doing good if even half the people will talk to you. Okay? It's just, it's fleeting. And I want you to know something. If you want to have meaning in life, then you want to continually grow in wisdom. You want it to be your value. So let me just ask, what are your values? What are the values that are guiding and governing in your life? Actor Jim Carrey said this, you know, quote, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. It's not. A lot of us are trying. We're going after it. Gung-ho, we've adopted the values of this world. And you're going to eventually come to the conclusion it is vanity and meaningless and striving after the wind. Friends, you want the answer? The answer is Jesus. Part of the reason why we're in a vanity, meaningless life in this world under the sun is to drive us to relationship with God where true meaning is found. You remember Jesus and all the chaos and all these hurting people needing help? This is what he said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and following. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden. Are you sick of the rat race? He says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I give you wisdom. I'll give you the values. You come to me. I will fill you. You learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sin is blinding, but the Savior gives sight and he gives life. So friends, remember this. It's the relationships that you have and the values that you hold that were really going to determine the life that you live. Katie Couric, 2015, University of, Madison, uh, University of Wisconsin at Madison, was asked to give the uh, commencement address. And I don't believe that Katie is coming from a uh, Christian perspective, but she hit it right on when she made these statements in this address. Quote, do not be seduced by the false intimacy of social media. Comfort and support can be found in online communities, but they cannot replace the humanity of real ones. I used to tell graduates that no one on their deathbed ever said, gee, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. The 2015 version of that should be no one on their deathbed ever said, gee, I wish I'd spent more time on my iPhone. We spend so much time these days looking for external validation with our carefully crafted Instagrams, clever postings, 
perfect pictures, counting our likes, favorites, followers, and friends, that it's easy to avoid the big questions. Who am I? Am I doing the right thing? Am I the kind of person I want to be? The kind of honest self-examination that truly fuels personal growth. So friends, the relationships that you and I share, the values that we hold, they will determine the life that we live. And that's why this text is so critically important. That these values from above, from God, are ours. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. Spilled it out, black and white, painted it with color. Help us not to miss the value of knowing you and living according to your word. For someone who has come here today who's never trusted Christ and the values of the word of the world have consumed them, they need not only hope, they need salvation from sin. Would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. I'm weary and I'm heavy and I need Jesus. And this morning, I believe and trust in him. So Lord, accomplish your work in our lives. May the values you extol in your word be the ones we live for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.